Our Father God, we give you thanks and praise today because you love us. You have made every provision in life for us. And Lord, we can't say anything but how wonderful you are. We thank you for the new year and the opportunity to come together in this place and study your precious word. May we listen to what Daniel did intently with a purpose to learn from his ways because God said he was a good man and he used him mightily. And I know each one of us in our own world, in our own way, we want to be used by you, Lord, mightily. So help us to do that today. Thank you for Catherine. I pray that you would use her now to glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. Happy New Year. Did you all have a great break? Are you glad it's over? Yes. I love the Christmas season, but I am always glad when it's over. I had a very, very busy, very busy time, but it was a good busy, a very good busy. Hey, ladies, come on in. If you would open up, please, to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the subject of Daniel Christ-like in a crisis. You think that's appropriate for our time? The whole world is living in a crisis today. Daniel, Christ-like in a crisis, and we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 14 to 30. With Daniel chapter 2, we entered into the second main division of this major prophet book of the Old Testament scripture. If you look at your outline, you'll see that that second main division of our overall outline for the whole book um, is called Daniel's Prophetic History of Gentile Nations. We'll be in this section for quite a long time because it goes all the way through the end of chapter 7. That first major division called Daniel's Personal History consisted of just chapter 1. Now, we were in it for quite a while, too, but not as long as we're going to be in this second major division. In Daniel chapter 1, we found out that Daniel was indeed an extraordinary youth of great integrity, right? He was a leader, even as a young teenager of 14 or 15 years of age. He was a leader, um, not a follower. He not only demonstrated unusual boldness for his God, but he demonstrated a keen perception of human nature. And he had a wise, discerning, and kind-hearted spirit that was genuine. He was a kind person. His level of commitment for the word of God was astonishing, absolutely astonishing. He purposed to obey God over men, even if that man included the most powerful king this world has ever seen. He purposed to obey God first and foremost, regardless of the potential cost even to his own life. He purposed not to compromise when it came to God's clear commandments. And he passed with flying colors what we called the diet test. I'm still working on that one. New Year's resolution again. (laughs) He and his friends also passed the diploma test. Nebuchadnezzar's assessment of them, and remember he's the one who gave the final exam after their three years of training in the Babylonian Brainwashing Academy. He assessed that the four Hebrew youth, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, were not only at the top of their class, the class of their own peers, 
But, he said, they were even ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all of his realm. That was pretty amazing, wasn't it? King Nebuchadnezzar was not a man who was easily impressed, but these four Hebrew youth had really impressed him. Well, with today's lesson, we're going to continue our discussion of Daniel chapter 2, which contains the most comprehensive prophecy in all of the word of God. So guess what? We'll be here for a while, parked in chapter 2. Most comprehensive prophecy in all the word of God, along with chapter 7, which parallels chapter 2. It's yet another chapter that presents us with a serious life or death crisis for Daniel and his friends in what we called in our last lesson, if you were here before we broke for Thanksgiving, we called it the dream test. We did look at verses 1 to 13 of this chapter already. I'll review real quickly. The four recently graduated Jewish youth who had been elevated now because they were so they so surpassed everyone else, they had been elevated to uh, the position of royal advisors of the king. They're now included in the category of wise men. They find themselves innocently included in a horrific death decree that was issued by the king for all of the wise men of Babylon. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. You see, what had happened was after waking from a troubling night's sleep, King Nebuchadnezzar assembled all of the various categories of his wise men, which included the magicians, the astrologers, the soothsayers, the sorcerers, and of course the Chaldeans, who were the most elite group of all the wise men. He assembled them before him and told them he had dreamed a dream. Now we talked about the fact that he may have had that dream going on for a while. Every night, you know, kept dreaming the same dream. So he tells them he had this dream, and it troubled his spirit. We saw that in verse 3. And it kept him from sleeping. Now, for whatever reason, we don't exactly know, um, but da Daniel and his three friends were not present when he assembled all the wise men. We don't know if the wise men called each other up and, you know, and, and got together, but they excluded, they, they perhaps ostracized these Jewish youths. For one thing, they didn't like it that they were considered 10 times better than them, but they also didn't like it because they worshiped a different God. They were Jewish. You know, they had their own God. They didn't get themselves involved in their sorceries and their occult practices. So some, for some reason, they were not there. All right, now the Chaldeans, who were always the spokesmen, they very confidently told the king, after he told him he had this dream, they confidently told him that they would interpret it for him. Okay? No problem, king. All you need to do is tell us the dream and then just leave the rest up to us. We'll handle it. But then came the shocker, right? Then came the shocker. Nebuchadnezzar demanded that they tell him the dream itself and then the interpretation of the dream. And if they couldn't do that, not very good news, they would be cut into pieces. They would be diced, like you do a tomato or an onion. Cut into pieces and their houses would be turned into public latrines, dung, dung hills. That was in verse five. However, if they could rightly tell him his troubling dream, repeat it to him, then they would receive 
significant rewards and honor. Verse 6. Well, in verse 9, the king told the Chaldeans basically that he was testing them. He was testing them. He said, tell me the dream and I shall know that she can show me the interpretation of it. Tell me the dream, and then I'll trust your interpretation. His words indicate that he really did suspect them of being a, a bunch of frauds who would do or say anything for political expediency to maintain their own power. They loved their own power, didn't they? We see this also in his repeated warning not to try to stall for time. We see it in verse 8 when he says, gain the time. I know of a certainty that you're going to try to gain the time, stall for time. He says it again in verse 9 when he says, till the time be changed. He knew that they would conspire to mislead him with lies and with corrupt words, he said, until he settled down and changed his mind. You know, give him a little time, he'll, he'll return to reason, uh, change his mind about this impossible demand of his and this decree. So he, he, we talked about this, he likely suspected their potentially treasonous ambitions. They would like to probably do away with him and take over when he was out of town because he was out of town a lot when he went on his campaigns, you know, back and forth to Jerusalem for one thing. So knowing that any tactic now to try to stall for time was useless, the king's advisors pleaded with him by making several defensive claims. First of all, they said, there's not a man on earth who could do what you're asking. No one can tell you your dream. That's impossible, king. And then they accused him of being totally unreasonable, which he was, right? He was. Um, they said that there was no ruler not only is there no man who could do what you're asking, but there's no ruler who would ask such a thing. That's in verse 10. They said it was a strange thing he was requiring. In other words, it's a rare thing. No one except the gods could do what he asked. Verse 11. What they didn't know is that in their defense, they were laying the groundwork for who? Our hero. They were laying the groundwork for Daniel to come forth and show the king and show all of them the power of the true God, his God, Jehovah God, El Elyon, the Most High God. They're laying the foundation for him to come in. Well, their words of accusation only in further infuriated an already volatile man. Was he volatile, the king? Oh, yeah. And it says in verse 12, for this cause, the king was angry and very furious. And so he ordered the captain of his guard, his chief executioner, a man by the name of Arioch, um, to round up all of his wise men, even those that weren't there, the wise men in all his realm, which now we know also includes Dan Daniel and his three friends, verse 13 tells us, round them all up to destroy them, to kill them, chop them in pieces, make their houses into dunghills. So... In today's lesson, entitled Daniel, Christ-like in a Crisis, we're going to see how Daniel's Christ-like intervention in this dream dilemma crisis saved the day. Not only for him, for his friends, but for all the wise men of Babylon. In the diet test, remember the diet test? He wouldn't purpose not to eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine. 
We especially noticed Daniel's uncompromising commitment to God, right? The one thing we think about when we think about the diet test is how he wouldn't compromise the commandments of God. Well, in the dream test, what we're going to particularly notice is his courage, the courage of Daniel, courage that was totally based on his faith and his commitment to God. Nebuchadnezzar, just like the world of unsaved people, always do, When he had a problem, when he was anxious about something, worried about something, what did he do? Just like the world does, he turned to in the wrong direction. He turned in the wrong direction, went to the wrong people for assistance, for help. Troubled people this world over do the same thing every single day, don't they? Your friends, people you know who aren't saved, where do they go for help in a crisis? The wrong place. The king had been troubled. We know this. We learn this later on in our lesson this morning. He had been troubled about the future when he went to bed. Not only was he troubled about the future for his kingdom, but for himself. People like to assassinate kings all throughout history. So he was worried. He was troubled. He went to bed. Uh, He had insomnia. But when God, when he finally fell asleep, when God gave him revelation that answered his worries, answered all of his questions... Nebuchadnezzar summoned before him men who could not help him understand God's message. God had given him a message, but these men couldn't interpret. They, couldn't, they didn't know that message. Why? Well, because they didn't know God. They were fakes, weren't they? They were frauds. The entire realm of Babylon's supposedly wisest men had no real power and no real answers for their king. They really had no real answers for themselves either, did they? Did they know what history was all about? Did they know why they were on planet Earth? Did they know where they were going when they died? Did they know the future like they claimed to know by reading the stars and reading sheep livers and all the crazy things that they would do, tea leaves and all that? Oil, remember oil spills? Did they really know the future? No. If they had, they wouldn't have gone before the king that day. They would have hightailed out of Babylon. (laughs) They didn't know when they went before him that he was going to give a death decree that they'd be chopped up. They had no real answers for anybody. Why? Well, because apart from knowing and trusting the God of creation and the God of salvation, the God of the universe, the most high God, the one and only true God, apart from knowing him, guess what? There are no real answers to life or death, why we're here, where we're going, what past history is all about, what the future is going to bring. And there certainly are no answers to life's crises without knowing the true God and trusting his word. But Daniel, Daniel knew. He knew the one and only most high God, El Elyon, didn't he? He, Can you imagine You can, because if you're saved, you have the same thing Daniel had. He had a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Is that not incredible to think about? Abba, our Father, we have a personal relationship with the Creator? Wow. His faith also had already, now he's only probably 19, 20 years old at the most, after his three years of training, um, 
but he had already been tested. He, his faith had already been stretched in a number of ways. First of all, the deportment test. When he was deported from Jerusalem over to Babylon, that was a big test for a young boy. He passed that test. He also passed the depression test because it would be definitely very depressing to be a young boy picked up, removed from your family, your friends, your culture, your, your religion, your temple, everything you had ever known and put into a totally foreign environment. But he passed the depression test. He also passed the deformity test because he was deformed. He was castrated and made into a eunuch. And then we know he passed with flying colors, as I said, the diet test. Well, you know what happens every time we pass a test in life? What happens? Go down the road a little bit, and you're going to be faced with <laughs> another test. And they're all for our good. God purposely orchestrates all the tests in our lives. But a new test was now before him, and we called it the dream test. We could call it the dream or death test. Give me the dream or it's death. Um, and the king, you know, he was an absolute monarch. He was an absolute dictator. The world has really never seen any king with the power that Nebuchadnezzar had. And when he, when he went into an angry rage, there was no way to stop him. So this is now where our extraordinary Jewish captive, so Christ-like, centuries before, Christ even came to earth. He did not have the example of Christ to look at like you and I do, but he's so Christ-like. Um, 600 years before Christ came to earth, this is now where he intervenes in this crisis. How could Daniel be so Christ-like? Well, he had some examples that had gone before him. He had examples from Abraham. Enoch, Noah, he had the examples of the patriarchs to look at. He had the example of a very Christ-like man named Joseph. Joseph, I am sure, I mean, we know Daniel knew his Old Testament. Obviously, he knew all about the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph with the coat of many colors. Joseph is one of the greatest typological pictures that we have of Christ in the Old Testament, isn't he? Now, he had a lot of things in common with Daniel, and you know Daniel thought of these, because Joseph, as probably a young teenager, was also taken captive against his will into a foreign land, wasn't he? Joseph was also forced to serve a foreign king, Pharaoh. And what else did they have in common? Joseph had been bestowed with a divine gift from God. What was it? He could interpret dreams. So we know that these guys had a lot in common. So he was an example for Daniel. And we see as we go through this crisis how much I think that Daniel learned from Joseph. We have such a great advantage over Joseph and Daniel, don't we? We not only have all the great men of faith, you know, the Hall of Faith guys to look back on. We have Joseph, we have Moses, we have Daniel, but we even have the example of Christ himself to model after, to emulate, don't we? To be Christ-like, especially in a crisis. You know, there are many Christian people who are useful to the Lord in the daily flow of things when there is no crisis. 
when there is no hurricane swirling around them. They go along, you know, they, they go to church, they attend to all their Christian services when there's no storm occurring. However, when a crisis hits, it definitely has a way of separating what we could call the sunshine Christians from the storm Christians. Think, for example, um, how you would respond. If you were in Daniel's shoes, how would you have responded to a very volatile, angry monarch who had just given the command that you and many others, including your best friends, be hacked into pieces? Would you be willing to approach such a man? Are you a storm Christian? <laughs> Daniel was. He was willing to approach that, that crazy man. Why? Well, I think he understood that it was for such a time as this that he had been given the gift of interpreting dreams, just like Joseph had had that gift for just as time as when Pharaoh had his dream. So Daniel was willing to go before this angry king, and he did so because he was a man of God prepared for a crisis. So let's look at his first crisis characteristic, Christ-like, I'm sorry, Christ-like characteristic to handle a crisis, and that's his honorable courage. Look with me at verses 14 to 16. It says, Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him what? Time. Compare that with verse 8. It's interesting that he would give him time and that he would show, then he would show the king the interpretation. All right, when God, I mean, when uh, Daniel got word from Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, that he and his friends, along with all the wise men of the Babylonian kingdom, were to be cut into pieces, guess what? Daniel did not respond as I probably would have responded <laughs> and as most people would have responded. He didn't respond with fear, for one thing, panic, worry, or even anger. He could have said, what in the world? We weren't even there. That's not fair. Why should we be included? We weren't even given a chance to tell him his dream. That's not fair. He didn't respond like that. How did he respond? We're told he responded with counsel and wisdom. And the word counsel in Aramaic actually speaks of discretion. He responded with discretion and wisdom. Now, we've already learned that young Daniel was exceptionally calm in a crisis, and he was wise with discretion when it came to his manner of conversation with some other Babylonian officials, such as Ashpenaz. Remember him? Ashpenaz, the master of the king's eunuchs, that was in chapter 1. And he was wise with discretion in the way he talked with his manner of conversation with Melzar, who was the warden directly over the Jewish captives. In fact, remember, God had even brought about a tender heart of fatherly affection for Daniel in Ashpenaz. That was in verse 9 of chapter 1. 
And now we're introduced to another Babylonian official, and his name is Arioc. He is the, the king's chief executioner. He's the guy who cuts the people up in little pieces. <laughs> now, Arioc, you have to admit, Arioc, this man who had to be a cold-hearted man to do that, that kind of thing, I just can't imagine doing that, but he did not even need to give Daniel the time of day, did he? Much less, you know, listen to him, ask his question. But apparently, Daniel had already, in his three years, in the court of the king, he had made a positive impact on more than just one or two Babylonian officials, like Ashpenaz and, and Melzar. He had come to know this man, too. Um, especially did Daniel display great discretion when it came to dealing with these different Babylonian officials about some very sensitive issues, crises. Uh, he showed great respect for them, for those in authority over him. We talked about this before. He didn't debate with them about things like you know, what he had to eat. He didn't argue with them. After all, what were they doing? They were just obeying their king. Whether it came, you know, involved feeding the captives from the king's table or whether it involved cutting people up in little pieces. They were just obeying orders. Well, in the situation with Arioch, Daniel, just like the Lord Jesus, I couldn't help but think of this because when we studied his life, didn't we see over and over again how the Lord Jesus would respond to people with a question? If they asked him a question, he would turn around and just ask them a question. It's a great method of, of dealing with people and drawing things out of them, getting them to know their own minds even. Well, Daniel did the same thing. He merely asked Arioch a question. He asked the man in charge of execution a man not known for compassion or mercy, why it was that the death decree of the king had been made so hastily. By way of this question, Daniel was subtly indicating his disapproval of that decree, the death decree, but he was doing it in an indirect manner because he was merely questioning why they all had to be put to death so quickly. And I'm sure Arioch had wondered the same thing. Why do, we have to, why do I have to do this so fast? Why can't he give somebody a little chance here to tell him the dream? But he was hoping to draw out further information from Arioch. He didn't know about the dream. He just knew that he was to be destroyed, he and his friends. Uh, <clears throat> and Arioch did give him, much, he gained much needed information from this captain of the guards. He learned from Arioch that this whole death decree revolved around a dream. What do you think immediately popped into Daniel's head when he heard that? Ah, God, I've got, you've given me the gift of interpreting dreams. He knew that. He had already, somewhere along the line, interpreted people's dreams. They told him the dream, and he rightly interpreted it, and whatever he interpreted, you know, prophesied came to pass. He knew by this point that he had that gift. I'm sure too his mind went back to Joseph. You know, I'm thinking for such a time as this, that's why I'm here. So Arioch told him that it revolved around a dream. Um, 
It's really amazing when you think about it that Eric didn't simply seize Daniel the minute he dared to question the king, right? He could have just seized him and taken him off to prison right then and there, put him to death. It's amazing that he really, that he took the time, that he stopped to answer Daniel's inquiry and that he then even allowed Daniel to take his case before the king because that's what Daniel does next. That's amazing. So we ask ourselves, who is in charge here? Who's doing this inside Ariok's heart? Who's orchestrating all of this? Well, we know the answer. God. This book is all about the sovereignty of God, right? He's in control. He's the sovereign king over all earthly kings. He is the sovereign king of the entire universe. Well, the next thing we learn is that Daniel was now the hasty one. Because he went straight in before the king to desire of him that he would give him time. Now, it was wise that Daniel went right away. That was wise because if he had waited, the wise men would have all been killed, (laughs) including his three friends and including himself. It was also wise that he went right away to the king because in spite of his cruel vindictiveness, the king was still very, at this point, still very concerned and deeply troubled about his dream. Time, just like the wise men knew, any amount of time might have caused the king to put the dream out of his mind. You know, just kind of forget about it, put it on the back burner. But Daniel approached him while he still had a strong desire to know what that dream meant. Now, this may very well have been the first time that Daniel uh, appeared before the king since that final exam at the end of his three-year training in the Babylonian Brainwashing Academy. Um, Now, you would surely think that he would have great apprehension to approach this this monarch, particularly after Nebuchadnezzar had issued such a hasty and such a horrible, cruel uh, decree. You know, it would take a lot of courage to approach a king like that, who just at a whim could say, just take him off, kill him. But Daniel had extraordinary courage, didn't he? extraordinary courage. It took a great deal of courage um, to approach ancient monarchs. And where do we learn this? Where do we, another book of the Bible told us about this. If you approached a king back in ancient times without being summoned, yes, Queen Esther, Esther 411, we learned that even though she was the queen, Yet it took courage for her to approach her husband without having been summoned. And if he didn't hold out the scepter, his scepter to accept her, (laughs) scepter to accept her, um, she could have been killed, right? So it took courage to do what Esther did. But she knew it was for a time such as this that she was born, that she existed. If I perish, I perish. Daniel knows the same thing. You know, the Christian life, at least the committed Christian life, takes a great deal of courage. And it's going to take even more courage if the Lord continues to tarry. My grandchildren, to live the Christian life, are going to have to have a lot more courage than my generation has had to have. We've had it pretty easy in this country, but it's not going to continue to be like that. 
It's a lot easier, isn't it, to walk down the wide path with everyone else than it is to go against the flow the opposite direction. It takes courage to take up one's cross, deny oneself, follow Christ, and be a witness for him. Remember what the word witness is in Greek? Same word as martyr. It takes courage to be a Christian. We're soldiers. It's a fight. It's a battle. And Daniel is a fantastic example to us of courage. From a teen to an old man, he's a continual example to us. It took courage for him to stand up and declare, you know, all alone at the beginning, that he would not defile himself with the king's food. That took courage. It took courage for him to tell ruthless King Belshazzar what the handwriting on the wall actually meant. He could have said something else instead of, you know, that's it for you, Belshazzar. That took courage. It took courage for him to continue to pray to his God three times a day with his window opened for everyone to see him, even though to do so the penalty was a lion's den. I don't know about you, but I might have closed my windows. <laughs> it took courage in our current passage for Daniel to approach this crazy king. But God, God gave him wisdom. God gave him discernment. God gave him a special gift. God gave him peace that passes all understanding. And God gave him godly counsel in the midst of a crisis. And guess what? He'll do the same for you and I if we live by faith and trust in the Lord. And you know, his very best work, God's very best work, is revealed in the impossible situations of life. Now, was this a humanly speaking impossible situation for any man to tell another person what they dreamt? Could you tell me what I dreamt last night? I mean, you could make a guess, but I can't even remember what I dreamt last night. <laughs> This was humanly impossible, but God does his very best works in impossible. He is the God of the impossible, isn't he? Nothing is impossible with God. He, he gets all the glory when he intervenes in impossible situations. And this definitely looked to be an impossible situation. Furthermore, with his God-given strength and serenity and almost audacious courage, which surely the king had to notice. Now, when Daniel came before him, do you think in Nebuchadnezzar's mind he, he remembered back to this guy? I think he did. Oh, yeah, him. I remember him. He excelled at that final exam. And all of a sudden, you know, sort of had his attention because he remembered him. Um, but I think also the king noticed his courage and his, you know, like the Lord Jesus in front of Pilate. There's just some authority about Daniel, even though he's a, just a young kid. Well, um, with, with his courage, his serenity, he made a request for the one thing that the king had warned the wise men not to ask for. And what was that? Time. Isn't that funny? The one thing is, don't you dare try to stall for time. Don't you dare ask me for time. And Daniel comes in. Now, he didn't know that. He comes in, and that's the one thing he asked for, is time. He asked for time because he knew he needed time to go to God in prayer and ask for his help in this death dream dilemma. There were other lives on the line besides his own. 
He went before the earthly king with an appeal for time so he could go before the heavenly king with an appeal to rescue the perishing. He was going to intervene on all those under the sentence of death. Who does that remind you of? The Lord. The Lord Jesus again. And Daniel did not merely make a request. With his request, he made the king a promise. If Nebuchadnezzar would grant him the favor of giving him time, then he would grant a favor to the king. He would come back and tell him his dream and give the interpretation of it. That's confidence, isn't it? (laughs) If ever there was a promise of faith, that was it. Because Daniel here is totally trusting in God to reveal to him the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt. Now, up to this point in time, I do not believe Daniel had ever done that before. He had interpreted somebody's dream when they told him the dream, but he had never requested the dream to begin with. So this is definitely a test of faith. That's not only a demonstration of his faith that God would come through for him, but it's a demonstration of his faith in God's omniscience, that God is all-knowing. Think about this. At this point in time, Daniel did not really know whether or not it was God who had given the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, it could have come, like a lot of our dreams, from our own minds. It could have come from uh, Nebuchadnezzar having eaten pizza and pickles and peppermint the night before. (laughs) That would be a combination. That'd give me more than a dream. (laughs) It could have, that dream could have had demonic origin for all Daniel knew, right? He didn't know that God had given Daniel, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, that dream. Nonetheless, he still knew that God alone could look into the secret places of darkness. He could even look into a person's mind as they slept and retrieve what was going on there. That's his faith in God's omniscience, isn't it? However, again, I think Daniel was thinking of Joseph and of their common situations of their common gift of dream interpretation. And he knew, just as in the case with Joseph and Pharaoh and his dream, he knew that there was a purpose in all of this. He knew that he was there, you know, for that time. And God was orchestrating this whole thing. And was he? Was God? Yes, God was. Well, the scripture doesn't specifically tell us, but it's obvious from the narrative that follows that King Nebuchadnezzar did grant Daniel, his request. Why do you think that was? Why do you think he gave it to him? He didn't give the wise men time, but he gave Daniel. Well, I think he knew there was really something very special about Daniel, everything about him. And so he said, well, what have I got to lose? If he doesn't do it right, I'll just kill him. Um, So he gave him time. Now, we don't know how much time he gave him. Seeing how hastily everything goes from here, he might have just given him that night. Okay, I'll give you tonight. If you don't come up with it tonight, that's it. But I don't know for sure. Anyway, we've discussed his honorable Christ-like courage in a crisis. Now we're going to look at Daniel's holy communion in a crisis. So look with me, first of all, at his request. 
to God. Verses 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Sounds like they live together in the same house, doesn't it? Verse 18, that they should desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. All right, so Daniel goes to his home. The king had provided them a home, and he made everything that he had learned from Arioch known to his three companions, and they immediately united their hearts in what? Prayer. When a believer is in a crisis... It is right and it is good for him to share her, to share his or her needs and concerns with other believers, trusted friends who also believe in the power of God through prayer. That's a good thing. These other guys were in a crisis too, weren't they? So all four of them got on their knees and prayed. Prayer is far more effective than panic. Sometimes when a crisis hits, a hurricane comes, a tornado or whatever in our lives, what's the first thing we do? We respond with panic. I have to remind myself of that all the time. No, prayer is much more effective than panic. Fall on my knees. I, I do this every time I lose something. I, I, well, I, had, I was, had my son and my husband were with me for two weeks. Well, my husband's always with me, but my son was home for two weeks. And men, why do they have this thing about, where did you put this? Where did you put that? <sighs> Everything was my fault, you know? <laughs> and I would get so upset, and then I would remember to pray. And every time I remembered to pray, we found whatever they were looking for that they had put there, not me, of course. You know that story, right? You're all familiar with that. <laughs> but <clears throat> prayer is more effective than panic. Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty monarch of the great Babylonian empire, he had taken his problems, his worries, his concerns to bed with him, hadn't he? And he couldn't sleep all night. He was troubled. Uh, he tossed and turned. But in contrast, Daniel and his Hebrew friends took their burdens, their troubles, their crisis, and they cast it upon the Lord in prayer. This is how the believer approaches a crisis, on his knees. <clears throat> Basically, the prayer of the four Hebrews <clears throat> consisted of three requests, very brief, they asked for God's mercy, they asked for the revelation, the secret of the dream, and they asked for preservation. A wise person, it is a wise person who begins prayer asking for the mercy of God. <clears throat> because what do we need more than anything? What do we need? We wouldn't even have salvation apart from the mercy of God, would we? His mercies are new every morning, but we need his mercy. We need his mercy for everything, even our next heartbeat, much less our salvation. They didn't seek for divine revelation or preservation either as their right. They didn't come before God and say, it's our right. Based on our merit, we ask that you give us the dream. You know, we have proven truth of, true to you, God. In the diet test, didn't we obey your commandments? Aren't we your sons? Aren't we your, you know, part of your covenant people? We deserve this. They didn't approach God based on their merit. They approached God requesting his mercy. We don't deserve anything, do we? 
<clears throat> they knew it was all a matter of the mercy of God. And they acknowledged that God was not like any other God, small g. He was not like the man-made, earth-bound, false gods, you know, the statues of gold and wood that the Babylonians worshipped or all the other pagan peoples. He, they called him the God of heaven. God of heaven. Well, let's look at God's answer, the revelation from God, verse 19. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Well, that very night, in a night vision. Now, what is a night vision? It's not a dream. It's not a dream. A night vision is a supernatural vision given at night, but while the person is awake. Okay? Daniel received revelation from God as to what the dream was that God had given to Nebuchadnezzar. Um... I don't know how that worked, but I believe that these four were, I don't think they slept. Would you sleep if you thought the next day you could be chopped up into pieces? I think they stayed up all night. I mean, we just have an outline of their prayer, but I think they stayed up all night praying. Or maybe one of them took a little snooze while the others continued to pray, but whatever. Daniel was the one who, just like John on the Isle of Patmos, in the spirit, had a vision and it was all before him. He could see it, but he was awake. Daniel was awake, probably in the middle of his prayer. And all of a sudden, he saw the image. And he saw the head of gold, the breastplate of silver, etc., etc. He saw the stone come out of heaven and hit that image on the toes, and the whole thing came crumbling down. He saw all that. He got the dream. Now, he already had the gift of interpretation. So I don't know if he had to get the interpretation. He had the gift. Yeah, vision. Vision, not dream. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. Anyway, um, I think they stayed up all night. And we know it was Daniel who received the answer because in verse 23, he said, Hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee. Answers to our prayers don't always come this quickly, do they, ladies? Don't you wish they did? Don't you wish you could make a prayer request and that night you get the answer? Doesn't always work that way. Um, because the Lord knows that if he delays answers to our prayers, now delays are not always denials, we've discussed that in the past, but he knows that if he delays answers, that that will test our faith, it will stretch our faith, um, it will, I uh, lost my place, it will stretch our commitment, um, when he finally does answer the prayer, aren't we even more grateful and thankful? And um, it, it just tests our spiritual stamina. It gives us patience, and patience, I hate it, but it's good for us. <laughs> but in this case, time was of the essence, because if he didn't answer their prayer, they would all be dead, perhaps even the next day. So their, the answer came quickly for them. Something else that then happened very quickly was that Daniel, with his friends, immediately offered the Lord a joyful prayer of thanksgiving, what we could call a hymn of praise. Now, wouldn't it be great if all Christians were as quick to thank and praise God for his answers to prayer as we are to ask? Hmm, wouldn't that be great? Remember when the Lord healed 10 lepers? How many came back to praise and thank him? Only one. It is, however, delinquent of us, and it is dishonoring of God 
not to thank him and praise him for his mercies every day. Giving thanks was very important in Daniel's life. Again, he's so Christ-like in a crisis. In fact, we notice that his hymn of praise takes up four times more space than did his request. His request was only in one verse. His hymn of praise takes up four verses. We usually do the opposite, don't we? I mean, we, we take long time to make all of our requests to God. And go to a prayer meeting and see how long it takes for all the requests to come out. And then notice how much time is spent praising God. We need to learn the lesson from Daniel here and remember this in the future. And by the way, all thanksgiving is actually praise. And praise is one of the greatest forms of worship. So when you're thanking God, you're worshiping God. Bible study is a form of worship. Praising God is a form of worship. All right, let's look at their praise to God now. Verses 20 to 23, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He had just seen that in the dream. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and look at this, and the light dwelleth with him. Who dwells with God? The light. Who is the light? Jesus. We're going to talk about this in a minute. That's the first clue of Jesus in the book of Daniel. And then he says in verse 23, makes it personal, I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee, gives the other guys credit here, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. I'm sure he shared what he learned with the other guys. Well, the first words of praise and thanksgiving with Daniel to God, blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his. That's a summary of the whole theme of the book of Daniel. That's a summary of the absolute sovereignty of God. He, God, controls all things and guess what is his? All wisdom and all might. All power and all wisdom are his. He shares that with us, but it's all his. He is the source of all power and all wisdom. This is the introduction of Daniel's doxology of praise, and it is full of theology. We don't have time. I mean, we could spend a whole lesson just on this hymn of praise, but it is full of theology. It honors God. Daniel knew this when we declare his name as worthy eternally. I mean, this speaks of the eternality of God, right? His name is worthy to be blessed eternally. Um, Daniel understood that. This Thanksgiving prayer shows us how intimately acquainted and saturated with Old Testament scripture these Hebrew boys were. These, everything they said is straight from scripture, Old Testament scripture. Not direct quotes, but it tells us they were very acquainted with such of the poetical books of, of the Old Testament as Job, the Psalms, Proverbs, they quote from Ecclesiastes, they knew their Old Testament. Well, Daniel declares that praise is due to the Lord God of heaven, the God of his fathers, for basically four reasons. Number one, God deserves praise forever and ever because all wisdom and power belong to him. That means he's omniscient. 
He's all-wise, and he's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. His wisdom always rightly directs his power. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar had power, didn't he? But did he have the wisdom to always rightly direct that power? No, he didn't. Only God has that quality. The all-wise God can do anything to accomplish his purposes and to deliver his people through the crises of life. Secondly, he deserves praise forever because he is in sovereign control of everything. He controls the times and seasons of events. Did you know that? He controls how long something will go on, an event, a king, whatever, a hurricane. He knows the times and seasons of everything. He knows when they will take place. Um, according to the Babylonians, it was the sun, the moon, and the stars that affected the time, that set the times and the seasons and affected the personalities and therefore the actions and behavior of men. You know, that's the thinking of astrology. That's what they believed. But Daniel believed what David believed in Psalm 31. Daniel understood that all times are in God's hands, including his own time. Remember, David said, my times are in his hands. Aren't our times in his hand? Did he orchestrate what century you would be born, what year you would be born in, whose parent, you know, who your parents would be, and when you're going to go to meet him? Our times are in his hands. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. They knew that. That's from Ecclesiastes 3.1. Everything is running according to God's purposes. That's comforting to me. He's the one responsible from removing kings and rulers from their positions and raising up others to replace them. Who's going to really be in charge this election year? Placing the next president on the, uh, <clears throat> I almost said the throne, <laughs> in the White House. Who's going to be, we need to remember this. I mean, we need to pray about it, of course, <clears throat> and I pray it'll be a Christian who will support Israel and who will get rid of abortion and all kinds of other things. We need to pray, but God ultimately is the one in charge of all political changes. Third, God deserves praise forever because he is the one who gives wisdom and knowledge. He alone reveals deep, hidden, mysterious, mysterious things. Think about, I mean, what he showed Daniel, what he showed Nebuchadnezzar, and we think, oh, that's wonderful, they had that revelation. But guess what? We have it too. Think of what we know about history. We have even more than Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar because we've gone further along in history. We have great knowledge of mysteries that the world out there has no idea where this world is headed, the future. They have no idea, and they laugh at us when we talk about Armageddon and the second coming and all that. But we know these things because he has revealed them to us. He alone knows what lies in darkness. Darkness hides nothing from God. In Daniel's words of praise in verse 22, as I said, we have the first glimpse of Christ in the book of Daniel. And the light dwelleth with him. The light dwelleth with the God of heaven. Now, Daniel probably didn't know exactly what that meant when he said it. Other people who read the Old Testament didn't really understand what that meant when they read it. But in John, the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, we learn that the light that came from his dwelling with God in order to shine in the darkness of this world is Jesus, the Christ. We also discover from John's Gospel that Christ is the Word. 
And the word was with God from the beginning. The word is God. Well, as both the light and the word, the Lord Jesus is the one who reveals truth. He's actually the one who revealed the dream to Daniel. He is not only the light and the word, he is the truth, isn't he? And the way. And to whom does he reveal light and truth? To the wise, to those who build their lives upon the rock foundation of his word, which is all about Christ, who is the rock. He reveals to them who have the knowledge of him the mysteries of history and life and death and the future. The wise men of Babylon were not so wise as they thought. They weren't really wise at all because they were not the recipients of Sophia wisdom, wisdom from above, divine wisdom. Proverbs 1.5, they were familiar with that too because it says a wise man will, what? Hear. How does faith come? By hearing and by hearing the word of God. A wise man or woman will hear and they will increase learning. Isn't that what we're doing? We have ears to hear. So he gives us light and truth. And the more we want, the more he gives us. The more we dig, the more we find the mysteries that the world has no idea about. Well, Daniel makes it personal in verse 23 when he said that the God of his fathers deserves praise forever because he had displayed the mercies that he had also given to the patriarchs of his, his faith, you know, um, his covenant-keeping patriarchs. And he gave, he gave by the mercies the same thing he had revealed to the um, patriarchs he gave to him and his companions. So by giving, he did so by giving Daniel wisdom and might by revealing to him what was otherwise impossible for anyone to know, and that was the content of that dream and the meaning of it. Isn't it really inspiring? I find it so inspiring to study Daniel. No wonder that song says, Dare to be a Daniel, right? Whew, what a guy. But isn't it inspiring to find that his love and his reverence and his gratitude for his Lord um, was so deep and, and it's evidenced by the fact here that after receiving the revelation of the dream, he didn't just immediately rush off to tell Nebuchadnezzar. That's probably what I would do. I mean, they were under a death decree. You know, if I, if I, I knew the next day I could be killed and then God answered my prayer, I'd probably jump up and write, run straight to the king's boudoir, <laughs> knock on the door. I got it, I got it. But Daniel doesn't do that. What does he do first? He takes the time. He gathers his friends around him, and he takes the time to praise God. That's, that's inspiring. And this is even though that death threat hung over their heads. To Daniel, it was far more important to first worship his heavenly king than it was to have the earthly king remove the threat of execution. Well, let's look at the last Christ-like characteristics of a, a godly person in a crisis, and that's humble capability, verses 24 to 30. Therefore, Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordered to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus unto him. Now notice, he is the one, Daniel, 
is the one giving orders to the chief executioner of the king. He says, destroy not, that's a command, destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in, that's the second command, before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Well, this is amazing too. Ariok obeyed him. <laughs> Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus unto him, I, notice his first word is I, mm, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Be uh, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that was his Babylonian name, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret of which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. And now I love this. I've got this highlighted in my Bible. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed what should come to pass hereafter. And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But, now here's where we see the humility, the Christ-like humility of Daniel. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Well, here, Daniel goes to Arioch after praising God. He goes to Arioch and actually gives the king's executioner two commands, uh, and that is bold. That is really bold, isn't it? And I am sure that Ariette couldn't help but to see the authority in this unusual kid. Just like they always notice Jesus' authority. He comes in with notable poise and absolute authority and says, destroy not the wise men. He wanted to make sure, you see, that no one was killed while he went in to talk to the king. What was he doing? He was wondrously intervening on behalf of all the other wise men of the whole Babylonian kingdom. Men who, what do you think would have done if the situation was reversed? <laughs> do you think those wise men would have intervened for Daniel, the Jewish Daniel and his friends? No way. And again, he's so Christ-like, intervening on behalf of those under the sentence of death. This is the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. These men, the wise men of the whole Babylonian kingdom, and there were probably thousands of them, they would owe their very lives to Daniel. And I can't help but think that some of them were one to his God, maybe some immediately, and over the years that followed, many more. After all, his God, Jehovah God, had provided the information to Daniel that they themselves had said no one except a God could do. And weren't there some descendants of these wise men, some 500 years later, who sought the king of the Jews, the Messiah? 
I definitely believe Daniel had an influence. This salvation of them, I think, brought many of them to the true God. Well, the second command he gives to Ariok is, bring me in before the king. And then he gave Eric the reason for why he was giving him these commands. He said, I will show unto the king the interpretation. Now, of course, if he could show the king the interpretation, that meant that he could show the king the dream. And Eric was quick, quick to take Daniel before the king. It says in verse 25, he did so in haste. And actually that word in the Aramaic, remember we're in Aramaic now until the end of chapter 7. In the Aramaic that word not only talks about quickness, but it also means that it included terror. <laughs> he went, Eric went kind of shaking in fright, but also quickly. I think he had a double thing going on in his mind. Despite Daniel's confidence, his composure, his absolute authority and assurance that he had what the king needed, still, in Ariok's mind, there must have been that possibility that Nebuchadnezzar could fly into another rage if the dream Daniel gave him was not the dream he had had. And if that happened, then Ariok's life would be on the line too, right? So that's part of Ariok's thinking, but then I think more of his mind was confident that Daniel would be able to give him the dream because he wants to take credit for the discovery of Daniel. Did you notice that? He says, I have found um, a man of the captive of Judas. And this is another difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. Eric was quick to try to get the credit. He thought maybe he could benefit from this, you know? He could get some reward for finding Daniel. He didn't really find Daniel. <laughs> Daniel's the one who went in before the king to told him he wanted time and he could do it. But he wants to take credit. But when the king turns to Daniel and asks him if he is able to give him his dream, Daniel makes sure that the king understands, first and foremost, that it's not because of him at all. This isn't, I'm not able to do this for you, king, because of anything in me. I have no more wisdom than anybody living. And he, he is sure, he makes sure he gives all the credit to God, doesn't he? See the difference between him and Ariok? Well, and then the first thing he really does is he indicts the wisdom of the world. Daniel, and I'm almost finished here, Daniel points out that although none of the king's wise men, none of his astrologers, his magicians, his uh, uh, soothsayers, the sorcerers or the Chaldeans, none of them could reveal the dream. He makes sure, remember that? They couldn't come through for you, could they? With all their little hocus pocus. And then he says... But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets. Daniel told the king that it was God who revealed to him the dream that he was about to share with the king. In fact, he goes on and tells Nebuchadnezzar that it was God himself who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream in the first place. He's the one who gave you the dream. He, and then he told me what that dream was. And then he tells him, he gave you the dream while you were lying on your bed, wondering and worrying about the future. Now, what do you think Nebuchadnezzar thought when he heard Daniel say that? You think he didn't get his undivided attention after saying that? So how would this young Jewish captive know what I was thinking when I went to bed? See, he's, he's displaying the omniscience of God to the king. 
I know what you were thinking because God revealed that to me. So from here on, Daniel has Nebuchadnezzar's undivided attention. Daniel said that the God of heaven gave the king the dream so that he would know what shall be in the latter days. You were wondering about the future? Boy, is he going to give you a picture of the future that goes all the way to the second coming of the Christ. He got exceeding abundantly above what he asked, didn't he? And we'll be talking about those latter days and weeks to come. Well, then, in humility that greatly contrasted with both of the other men in that room, Daniel said, but as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living. He made sure to tell the king that it was not about him, nothing to do with him. He also had made sure that the king understood it had nothing to do with the wisdom of the world. In other words, it wasn't um, due to Daniel's excellence in learning in the Babylonian brainwashing academy. It's not because I'm a better learner, so I know better than all your astrologers and I could figure this thing out. He makes sure that, God, that Nebuchadnezzar understands that it was solely because his God had mercifully revealed the secret to him. He wanted to glorify God first and foremost in his life. He wanted to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar knew that only the Lord God of heaven, not puny little earthbound idols, possesses the knowledge and the power to truly help people in their understanding of life and of death and of history and of the future. And only the Lord God of heaven has the power and the might to help people in their times of crises, right? So that's what he made sure the king understood first. And then he goes on to interpret the dream. And that's what we'll be looking at next week and for weeks to come. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for this reminder that the wisdom of this world is indeed foolish. It is fleeting. And it is failing. As Nebuchadnezzar found out. He only found answers to his questions from you through your servant. And what a great reminder to us this is that you alone have the answers to all of our problems, all of our worries, all of our concerns, all of the perplexities of this world today. The course of all history is in your hands. Thank you for that comfort to know you are sovereign. You are in control of everything that happens in our personal lives and in the, our national life. Thank you, Father. Thank you for sending the light that dwelt with you to shine his illumination and give us truth, that he came to this earth to give us truth about you. Thank you for allowing the light to come to earth. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the intervention um, that he had on our behalf because we were, like the wise men, we were under the sentence of death without his intervention. Thank you that he finished the work on the cross for us so that we could spend eternity in his presence, in the presence of the light and the truth. And we look forward to that day. And I ask that you'd use every woman today, uh, this week as light and as salt in this dark world around us. For we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.